Concentration and Meditation A Manual of Mind Development by Christmas Humphreys Preface It is now many years since I began to draft the material which was first published by the Buddhist Society as Concentration and Meditation, and I am asked by Mr. Jeffrey Watkins who, at his father's famous shop in Cecil Court, sold the first copies to make what corrections I wish for a new edition. He has helped me greatly in this task. The genesis of the book explains one feature of it. There was at the time a sudden spat of books on mind development of every kind which had one aim in common, to enable the practitioner to score off his rivals in business, love, or social climbing, to show off his alleged new powers, and, generally speaking, to inflate his ego at the expense of those about him. But there is a law as old as man to the effect that he who acquires the least advantage over his fellow men by the development of his own indwelling faculties must use them solely for the advantage of those fellow men, and never for himself alone. The law is utterly impersonal, and the penalty for disobedience is at least the loss of powers gained and, if the wrong course be pursued, what seems to be a shriveling up of the mind which makes the sufferer the pity of his friends. One cannot therefore overestimate the importance of right motive in any attempt at spiritual development. Hence the emphasis upon it throughout this manual, and indeed it was largely written to this end. It is therefore of interest, and as a Buddhist, I do not believe in coincidence, that at a time when meditation is once more in the public mind, a new edition of this work should be prepared and published. It certainly seems as timely now as it was when it first appeared. My name appears as author, and in fact I drafted the material section by section for consideration at weekly meetings of the small society then known as the Buddhist Lodge. All present at each meeting had their say and many a point was carefully debated. I am therefore grateful to those unknown persons who helped to produce the book which finally appeared. As I said in the preface to the first edition, for various reasons, few detailed references have been given to books from which quotation has been made. Many of these have appeared in various editions, making accurate reference cumbersome, and space has been at all times limited. Moreover, the compilers in no way claim such extracts as authority in support of their own views for they recognize no authority in matters spiritual save the intuition of the individual. Where, however, an idea is well expressed by another writer, his or her words have been used in addition to our own, while a generous use of quotation serves to show that the views put forward by the compilers are held by an ever-extending range of thoughtful minds.
The book has been written for a hypothetical enquirer who is interested, yet knows nothing of the subject. Considerable space has therefore been devoted to the preliminary questions of right motive and the like, without which, in the opinion of the compilers, no such manual should be published. The book is compiled as a progressive course of mind development, and it is hoped that a general reading of the manual, followed by a consistent and sincere attempt to apply its principles, will enable the average student, without danger to mind or body, to develop his spiritual qualities to the point when he is ready for that expert guidance without which it is so hard to tread the final stages to enlightenment. No knowledge of Buddhism is needed for an understanding of the principles herein explained. But as it is written with an emphasis on Buddhist ways of thought, it will be better understood after reading some general textbook on Buddhism. If I mention my own Pelican Buddhism, it is only because it was prepared in somewhat the same way, and having sold steadily since publication, it presumably serves its purpose. There are now many books on meditation, but at the Buddhist society, we still discriminate between those which never mention the word motive and those which take the same view as ourselves about its fundamental necessity. The better type covers a wide field, from the Theravada school of Ceylon and Thailand, where the full system was written down some 2,000 years ago, to the methods of Tibetan and Zen Buddhism, both of which, however, have been in existence for over a thousand years. Yet no such work makes the distinction I deem so important between concentration the controlled development of the mind as a precision instrument of no spiritual significance, and meditation, the right use of it to spiritual as distinct from merely material ends. Meditation is of course no newcomer to the West. Christian communities have used it from time immemorial, and whether called prayer, meditation, or silent communion, its purpose was ever the same. The union, the Buddhist would say reunion, of the individual with the universal mind. That this has a thousand names is of no consequence. It remains forever the namelessness, and when the dewdrop in full consciousness slips into the shining sea for a single moment of no time, it needs no name for that supernal experience. All that come from the East is but a variety of methods new to the West, some of service to the Western mind, and some which those with great experience hold to be quite unsuitable. There are no shortcuts to enlightenment. This is no place to make distinctions by name, but from the Buddhist point of view, two principles may be constantly borne in mind. No true master of meditation will take one penny for his teaching. No true master makes any claim or allows any claim to be made on his behalf to abnormal powers or achievement.
In order to improve the current edition, I reread every word of it, and was interested to note how little I wished to change. If I have since grown in wisdom, I have only developed my understanding of these eternal principles, and I humbly prefer this new edition as a guide which, rightly used, may help the reader to obey the final words of the All-Enlightened One. Work out your own salvation with diligence. Introduction Most of the great religions and philosophies have stressed the importance of mind development, but none so much as Buddhism, wherein it is regarded not merely as the principal occupation of the more enlightened student, but as an integral part of the daily life of the humblest follower of the All-Enlightened One. This attitude is based on common sense, for it is obvious that only in a fully developed and purified mind can the fires of anger, lust, and illusion be stilled and the cause of suffering destroyed. The very system of thought we know in the West as Buddhism is based on the supreme enlightenment gained by the Buddha in meditation. How else, then, shall we attain the same enlightenment if we do not follow in the self-same way? In order to appreciate the importance of meditation in the Buddhist life, one has only to consider the best-known summaries of the Buddha's teaching as given by himself. Dana Sila Bhavana, for example, is often given as such a summary. First comes Dana, universal charity, then Sila, strict morality, and thirdly, in progressive importance, Bhavana, mind development. Again, seize to do evil, learn to do good, cleanse your own hearth, this is the religion of the Buddhas. Note that so soon as ethical control is well established, the cleansing of the heart must follow as the next step to the goal. It is true that in one sense the various steps must be trodden simultaneously. One need not wait for ethical perfection before beginning to meditate. For it is only in meditation that the necessary wisdom and strength will be released for the task of self-purification. At the same time, it is well to consider these steps in the order given by the Buddha, for only when the preliminary stages are well in hand will the full benefits of meditation be obtained. All this applies in particular to a still more famous summary of the Buddhist way of life, the Noble Eightfold Path, whose steps are frequently described as falling into three main groups. First, under right views and aspirations comes right knowledge. Secondly, under right speech, action, and livelihood comes right action. And finally, under the last three stages, usually translated as right effort, concentration, and meditation, comes right mind development. 
It seems clear, therefore, that meditation, using the term to summarize the last three stages of the path, is not merely an integral part of Buddhism, but the very climax of its other doctrines, laws, and practices. Through this alone perfection lies. Through this alone can one with patient toil unveil the Buddha light within. The field of mind development, in brief, lies between the man of average culture and his further spiritual development as a bridge between more worldly perfection. However gilded the shackles of samsara and the inner world of reality where, on the threshold of nirvana, he sees for the first time the true nature of the illusion left behind. The Importance of Right Motive Prepare thyself, for thou wilt have to travel on alone. The teacher can but point the way. The cleansing of the heart is no light task. And as these words from the voice of the silence show, it is a long and lonely road. It must needs be difficult. For the untrained stallions of the mind must be brought under control, and the littlest fond offense brought out into light and slain to rise no more. There are dangers on the way, and those who succumb to them. As is pointed out in W.Q. Judge's Culture of Concentration, immense fields of investigation and experiment have to be traversed. Dangers unthought of and forces unknown are to be met, and all must be overcome, for in this battle there is no quarter asked or given. The prize, however, is worth it all, to free oneself from the tyranny of earthly limitations, and with a soul that lends its ear to every cry of pain, like as the lotus bears its heart to drink the morning sun, to join that unseen brotherhood whose spiritual wisdom forms the guardian wall about humanity. Only with some such motive, however dimly formulated in the mind, is it wise to begin the practice of mind development. Knowledge and the power which knowledge confers is a neutral force, becoming good or evil according as it is applied. Rightly used, it is the high road to perfection. Abused, it can create a hell past human imagining. Between the two extremes of pure benevolence and absolute selfishness lie a variety of motives, all of which must sooner or later be eradicated from the mind. There is the desire to gain a superiority over one's fellows, either in one's own esteem or in an actual competition in worldly affairs. There is the desire to find an escape from the monotony of daily duty, or, more often in the case of women, a relief from the tedium of a purposeless existence. Or again, there may be a desire to experiment in some new stunt with which to amuse oneself and one's equally ineffective friends. All these are so many ways of prostituting a sacred faculty. 
the abuse of which is the essence of black magic and a long step on the road to spiritual death. There is only one right motive for mind development, an understanding of the nature and purpose of man's evolution, and the will to hasten that evolution in order that all life may be the sooner brought to enlightenment. Wherefore, let every student pause and consider well before embarking on this final science, this final stage of the ascent towards the goal. Let him, before he seeks the changeless, be certain that he wearies of the world of change and longs with a yearning past denial to find and win reality. Some reach this stage by an all-too-intimate acquaintance with the truth of suffering. Some by an intellectual understanding of the illusory nature of phenomena and the will to discover the noumenon which lies beyond. Others are again impelled by the rising call of pure compassion to dedicate their lives to lessening by just so much that mighty sea of sorrow formed of the tears of men. These only may be certain that they enter the path with proper motive. For those alone in whom the white flame of compassion is a light past all extinguishing, appreciate that to live to benefit mankind is the first step, and therefore lend an ear at all times to the voice of compassion when it whispers, can there be bliss when all that lives must suffer? Shalt thou be saved and hear the whole world cry? There is no compromise when once the path is entered. Once the feet are turned towards enlightenment, the heart's attraction to the world is left behind. To move too soon is to intensify unduly the strain of rival attractions. Therefore, let the mind and heart be single in purpose before the journey is undertaken, and let the motive above all be pure. That the practice of meditation tends to remove the fetters of suffering by raising the consciousness to a level above its sway is the testimony of all who practice it. But this is not the motive which will lead one to the goal. Choose the way for its own sake before the life is entered. Right motive is always impersonal. An impersonal turning of the will towards the removal of all suffering. Without undue attention to one's own. And an effort to uncover within each form of life that essence of mind which, as the Sutra of Hui Nang points out, is intrinsically pure. The light is within thee, said the Egyptian Hierophants. Let the light shine. To awaken in all forms of life this knowledge, and the way to realize it, is the aim of all who strive to follow in the footsteps of the all-compassionate one. Self-development or service. Do not be deceived by the false antithesis of self-development and service, the arhat and the bodhisattva ideal. 
On the one hand, no man can be of service to others until he has attained some mastery of his own instruments. On the other hand, all self-development and purification is undertaken in vain so long as there remains thought of self. Once more, the wise man treads the middle way, for his life is a happy alternation between introversion and extroversion, between the subjective life of meditation and the objective life of service. In service, the subjective finds its liberation. Yet that service will not be wise unless it is actuated from an understanding gained in the meditation hour. Meditation in Prayer Most Westerners are born and bred in Christianity and have in early years been habituated to the practice of prayer. The word has many meanings, varying with the spiritual development of the individual, but save in the true mystic its essence is always supplication to some external being or power. In meditation, however, there is no such element of importuning, of begging for what one has not. At the best, the method of prayer is a yearning of the heart. Meditation, on the other hand, reorientates the mind, thereby producing the knowledge by which all that is rightly wanted is acquired. The meditator does not ask for guidance, for he knows that a purified mind can call upon the wisdom which dwells within. He does not crave for virtues, for he knows that in meditation he may and will acquire them. Nor does he intercede for others when by his own unaided efforts he may assist them to the extent that their own karma will permit. In brief, prayer at its best is the approach of the heart and produces the mystic. Meditation, with the wise service which accompanies it, produces the knower. There is a point, however, where the two methods meet. If by prayer be meant a lifting oneself to the level of the eternal, or even, if the desire be impersonal, the soul's sincere desire uttered or unexpressed. It ceases to be prayer in the ordinary sense of the term and rises to the level of meditation. It is the element of supplication to an outside power as distinct from a conscious union with the God within which distinguishes the two. The nature of self. Know thyself, said the Delphic Oracle. The way of meditation is the way of knowledge, and the aim of all such knowledge is to find and identify oneself with the self within. It is therefore of extreme importance to possess some knowledge of the nature of self and its vehicles, in order that the purpose and technique of meditation may be understood. The simplest analysis is that of St. Paul into body, soul, and spirit. The first including the complex personality, the second all that is thought of as the higher self, 
and spirit being as useful a term as any for what the Buddha called the unborn, unoriginated, uncreated, and unformed. These names have no validity in themselves. They are but ways of speaking, definitions of everyday use. As the Buddha described his analysis of self, Topathapada, the mendicant. In considering these three divisions, it is well to begin with that of which the others are the vehicles or forms. It is all too easy to think of man as having a soul or spirit, whereas in truth each man, each form of life, is in essence a spark of the flame, a fragment of the undivided clothes in the garments of illusion. Hence the wealth of analogy and symbol used to describe evolution. The word itself means to unfold. As the revelation of an already existing splendor, a shedding of the veils which hide reality. Not without reason does the East epitomize its wisdom in the phrase, become what you are. This spirit is no mere attribute. In India, known as Atman, it is the essential man. Yet in that, it is but an indivisible aspect of the nameless all. No man may claim that it is his alone. Hence the Buddhist doctrine of anatta, not atta. Designed to remove the illusion that there is any abiding principle in man, that there is in his composition any single attribute which distinguishes him eternally from other forms of life. In brief, spirit, like nirvana, is, and every form of life, high or low, is but an ever-changing manifestation of the eternally unmanifest. The one, however, manifests as the many, and each spark of the flame is wrapped in sheaths or bodies of increasing density. The most tenuous of its veils is Bodhi, the home of intuition, and this, together with manas, mind, comprises what may be called the higher self, as opposed to the composite personality whose final garment is the outward body of clay. Each one of these bodies has a life and form of its own. The complex whole forming the universe in miniature, and therefore the key to all the wisdom yet unknown. Unfortunately for our comfort, the desires of these vehicles are in the lower stages of evolution, often incompatible with one another, and invariably inimical to the interests of the self. The body has its own coarse physical desires. The emotional or passional nature craves for a strong vibration to give it stimulus. The rational or thinking mind cries out for its own food, and, like an unbroken stallion, fiercely resents the slightest attempt at control. This complex personality, the Buddhist Skang does, wages unceasing warfare with the higher self for command of the whole. Yet until this battle be finally won by the higher vehicles, this truer, slowly evolving self can never fulfill its destiny and merge the ocean in the drop, the drop within the ocean.
Most men are so immersed in the claims of the lower, selfish personality that they have lost all sense of that golden age of spiritual perfection to which they must eventually return. And for them, the sense of warring duality, of unceasing inward strife, has not begun. Sooner or later, however, the fight must be undertaken and fought to a finish on the battleground of the human heart. Here is the battle described in the Bhagavad Gita, and here the meeting ground of most of the poetry, legends, myths, and allegories by which men learn of their spiritual heritage. Those who have no desire to fight must await the birth of courage. As the master M once wrote to A.P. Sinnet, Life leads through many conflicts and trials, but he who does not to conquer them can expect no triumphs. Not else is of such absorbing interest. Not else has such a final value, for, as the words of the Dhammapada proclaim, though one should conquer in battle a thousand times a thousand men, he who conquers himself is the greatest warrior. Yet, paradoxically enough, in this fight it is not the self that fights. As is said in the voice of the silence, the branches of the tree are shaken by the wind. The trunk remains unmoved. When the whole strength of the will is bent towards unselfish purposes, the unruly lower vehicles are slowly brought into alignment, thus permitting an uninterrupted flow of life from the highest to the lowest, making the man as a whole a channel of world enlightenment, a fountain of spiritual life to all mankind. To produce this perfect alignment is one of the objects of meditation. Now consciousness can function at any level on which it has an instrument. Most men live in their emotions or at the best the lower mind. But in meditation one raises the level of consciousness, reaching first the higher mind, the realm of abstract ideas and ideals, and then, at first in flashes of Satori, as it is called in Zen Buddhism, and then continuously the plane of intuition or pure knowledge, when thought has become unnecessary and the knower and the knowledge blend in one. From this point of view, the science of meditation may be called the culture of consciousness. The subject of self must inevitably recur in this manual, but the foregoing will be sufficient as a background for the practical instruction which is to come. Applying the law of analogy, as above, so below, the student will understand more and more of the nature of his own being, and thereby arrive the easier at the control of the lower vehicles. Yet let not overstudy lead to an egocentric attitude of mind. As is said in Light on the Path, the right motive for seeking self-knowledge is that which pertains to knowledge and not to self.
self-knowledge is worth seeking by virtue of its being knowledge, and not by virtue of its pertaining to self. The Power of Thought The West is not yet awake to the power of thought. Though conscious of the influence of strong personalities, of mass suggestion by slogans and advertisement, and even of atmosphere in certain places, it is left to a few advanced psychologists to appreciate the power of thought on health and character. Yet how many of these have reached an intellectual acceptance, much less a realization of the first verse of the Dhammapada? All that we are is the result of what we have thought. It is founded on our thoughts, it is made up of our thoughts and trimmed the sails of their research accordingly. Yet so it is. All that we are and do is the result of what we have thought. An action, good or bad, may be described as precipitated thought. No single voluntary act can be performed without a preceding motion of the mind, however instantaneous. From raising the foot to the planning of New Delhi, each act exists as a thought in the mind before that thought appears as an act. Our behavior, then, is the outcome of our mental processes, of what we are, but what we are at the moment depends on what we have done in the past. Thought, therefore, not only decides what we do, but what we are. Whether that bundle of qualities be known as character, karma, or the soul. Now Buddhist philosophy is always taught, and modern science is gradually coming into line, that force and matter are interchangeable terms. There is neither an ultimate unit of matter nor of energy. The concepts are interchangeable. At one end of the scale, however, force is so little limited with matter that it may be thought of as pure force. And at the other end, matter is so dense that it may be regarded as motionless. Between these two extremes lies every degree of density of matter and purity of force. Now the level at which thought functions is higher than the highest level which the eye can see. Yet thought itself is a form of matter as regards the medium in which it moves though it may be regarded as force as regards its origin. But if the skillful hands of the potter can mold a lump of clay into the likeness of his thought, how much more does every thinker to some extent, and the trained thinker to a very great extent, mold the more tenuous matter of thought into definite shape as he decides at will? Hence the saying, thoughts are things, and hence the meaning of the word imagination, which means image-building. These thought-forms, however, not only exist in the imagination, but are to be seen by a trained clairvoyant persisting in the thinker's mental atmosphere. The power of such thought varies, of course, with the intensity with which they were created, and their repetition. Most of them swiftly fade away, Others remain to have their inevitable reaction for good or bad 
on the mind which gave them birth. A thought of hatred against an individual will grow and grow until it becomes a cancer in the thinker's mind. A thought of love to an absent loved one stimulates the lover to still further love. But the effect of the thought form does not end with its creation. Even as radio waves are picked up wherever a set is tuned into their wavelength, so the thoughts which each of us think each moment of the day go forth into the world to influence for good or bad each other human mind. Hence such phenomena as mob psychology and telepathy, and hence the power of suggestion which is so little understood and so terribly abused. Again, like attracts and breeds its like, and thoughts, whether good or bad, will collect and reproduce their kind. Hence the phenomena of temptation or conversion, as the case may be. As a man toys with the thought of stealing, so is he strengthening his movement towards theft. And as he ponders the foolishness of previous conduct, so is he strengthened in his resolve to turn away. As we think, so we become. Mind development, then, whether the meditation be turned without or within, is a subject worthy of most careful study and unceasing practice until the fruits themselves proclaim its value. That it is arduous, and even at times wearisome, is not to be gainsaid, but that it is ultimately necessary is the testimony of all the ages, and its reward is the end of suffering. To those advanced in meditation, the pages which follow will be of little value, but to those who are but entering the path, or who, consumed with doubt, stand on the threshold irresolute, we offer the words of the Master K.H. to A.P. Sinnott, we have one word for all aspirants. Try. Part 1. Concentration. Preliminary observations. Definition of terms. Much unnecessary confusion has been caused by the use of the same terms with widely different meanings. Let it therefore be noted that the following broad classification will be used throughout this work. The process of mind development falls into two main divisions, concentration and meditation. By the former, we mean the preliminary exercises in one-pointedness of thought, which must of necessity precede success in the latter, while meditation will be considered under three subdivisions. The first of these consists of early exercises in the right use of the instrument thus prepared, and will be described as lower meditations. Following this comes the realm of higher meditation, which in turn merges into contemplation. Our classification is therefore as follows. Concentration. Before an instrument can be used, it must be created. It is true that most men learn to concentrate on worldly affairs, 
but all such effort is directed towards the analysis, synthesis, and comparison of facts and ideas. While the concentration, which is a necessary prelude to meditation, aims at unwavering focus on the chosen thing or idea to the exclusion of any other subject. Hence the need of strenuous and even wearisome exercises for developing the power of complete one-pointedness of thought upon the subject in hand, be it a pencil, a virtue, or a diagram imagined in the mind. It will therefore be noted that concentration, in the sense above described, has neither ethical nor spiritual value, and calls for no special time or place or posture for practicing. The exercises correspond to those which a ballet dancer must use before the simplest dance can be performed, or the earnest young pianist's scales, or the fencer's early lessons in precision of aim. Only when the executive instrument, be it the limb, the hands, or the machinery of thought, has been brought under control of the will, can the art itself be effectively developed. Lower Meditation Under this heading come those mental exercises in which the newly created instrument is first dedicated to useful work. It includes, for example, the meditation on the bodies, on the fundamental doctrines of the Buddha's teaching, such as karma, rebirth, the oneness of life, the three fires, the three signs of being, and early exercises in self-analysis. Needless to say, a perfect understanding of these subjects is a monopoly of a perfected mind, but a beginning is here made in the mastery of their true significance. Other subjects to be dealt with under this heading include the whole range of deliberate character building, the use of the four Brahma-viharas, and early steps in the deliberate raising of consciousness, which, as will be seen, is in a way the whole object of higher meditation. The range of this subdivision is therefore enormous and it will take the average student many years and even lives to move beyond it. Within its compass lie the beginnings alike of mysticism and occultism, of yoga and of Zen. For only in the later stages of meditation are all these paths perceived as one path, and all the goals perceived as one reality. Higher Meditation Stages 2 and 3 have no clear-cut dividing line. Yet those who reach this level will at some great moment realize that a subtle yet tremendous change has taken place within. Henceforth, they will be in the world and yet not of it serving the world, yet definitely liberated from its thrall. 
In meditation, they will find that objects are transcended, and even names and definitions left behind. Here is a world whose scale of values is the essential nature of things and not their outer semblances, where for the first time the meditator is freed from the tyranny of forms. Henceforth, the karma of the past may hold the student to sensuous and therefore valueless pursuits and interests, but his inner eyes will have seen the vision glorious, and the hand of time alone will hold him from his heritage. Under this subdivision fall the jhanas, the stages of consciousness so fully described in the Buddhist scriptures, and here belong the more difficult koans used so freely in Zen Buddhism. In this division, too, will be found the higher realms of mysticism, in which intense devotion blends with intense intellection in the understanding of pure abstractions and the relationship between them. Here is the meeting ground of mathematics and music, of metaphysics and pure mysticism. For here alone the limitations of form may be transcended, and the essence of mind perceived in all its purity. Contemplation If there are comparatively few yet ready for higher meditation, there are still fewer to whom the act of contemplation is more than a nebulous ideal. This exquisite sense of union with reality, of spiritual absorption, into the very nature of one's ideal, though mentioned at greater length hereafter, can never be usefully treated in any textbook, for those who have reached such a level need no literature, and to those who have not so attained even the finest description would also be meaningless. Dangers and Safeguards There are those who hesitate to take up meditation on account of its possible dangers to physical and mental health. Nothing, however, worth having can be attained without some risks. And in unfailing observance of the following three rules, together with the exercise of a little common sense, will obviate these dangers and their unpleasant consequences. First warning, seek wisdom and not powers. The necessity for purity of motive has already been emphasized, and it follows that any attempt to work for power or the development of psychic powers is extremely dangerous nor is the development of abnormal powers any evidence of spiritual development. The power complex, so easy to observe in one's neighbor's desire to dominate and impress his fellows, is latent in each one of us, and much that masquerades as altruism and a desire to help humanity will be found on ruthless analysis in the meditation hour 
to be naught but the will to self-aggrandizement. Spiritual pride is rightly regarded as one of the last fetters to be broken. And whereas the premature development of powers inevitably serves to inflate one's egotism, the pursuit of wisdom will produce not merely power over other beings, but power to control the lower self which otherwise would gain the mastery. It is most unwise for an inexperienced student to concentrate on the psychic centers in the human body, however pure the motive. For concentration upon a center stimulates its functioning. And as most people function primarily through the centers below the diaphragm, which govern sex and the lower emotions, their stimulation is clearly as unwise as it is dangerous. More men and women have been driven insane through a premature awakening of the forces latent in these centers than most students realize. Nor will the pursuit of phenomena lead to enlightenment. For as Master M once pointed out to A.P. Sinnott, like the thirst for drink and opium, it grows with gratification. If you cannot be happy without phenomena, you will never learn our philosophy. I tell you a profound truth in saying that if you but choose wisdom, all other things will be added unto it in time. Second warning, avoid stunts and all excess. Once more, the importance of pure motive is made evident. For any inclination to show off or to boast of the length or results of one's meditation is a symptom that the snake of self is once more beginning to rear its head to the detriment of true progress. It was from the depths of his wisdom that the Buddha sternly forbade his bhikkhus to make any such display, and even expelled from the order those who were guilty of it. The same applies to excess. In the early stages of meditation, one is developing a new set of mental muscles. And just as the athlete trains himself by slow yet progressive effort, so the spiritual athlete regards excess in any direction as a source, not of progress but of delay. Once more, the touchstone of wise conduct in the middle way proclaimed by the All-Enlightened One. Never be negative. Third warning. It is true that there is a form of spiritual passivity, which is a proper stage of growth. But experience has shown that for the beginner, the above rule should be carefully observed. Once more, the ideal is the middle way between an aggressively positive attitude of mind, in which the noise of one's thought machinery will drown the voice which speaks only when the mind is stilled, and a negative receptive attitude which places the whole personality at the mercy of any entity, human or subhuman, which cares to take possession.
Obsession, complete or partial, permanent or temporary, is far more common than most students realize. But he who carefully cultivates a happy mean between the two extremes will be immune from every outside influence. The ideal during meditation is to make the mind positive towards all outside interference. Whether of intruding thoughts or actual entities, and yet be receptive to all higher influence coming from within. A little practice in this exercise will enable the student to achieve a happy combination of resistance and non-resistance, of positive and negative, in which all outside influence will be excluded, and yet the channels of inspiration be fully opened to the light within. This being the unanimous advice of all who write on meditation, it is hardly necessary to point out the long delay in progress, which any and every form of mediumship inevitably causes to the medium. As is well known to every student of occultism, the adept and the medium are poles apart and he who so far slips down the ladder of evolution as to give up his own self-mastery will spend many arduous lives in regaining his lost ground. Further Preliminary Observations There are certain further rules or maxims to be borne in mind if meditation is to prove an entrance to the way of enlightenment and not merely an intellectual pastime. Do not begin unless you mean to continue. As already pointed out, meditation is not a hobby, and it is unwise to trifle with so serious a subject. As is said in the Dhammapada, that which ought to be done, do with all vigor. A half-hearted follower of the Buddha spreads much evil around. Progress is upward and must therefore be continuous, or the climber will slip back whence he came. At the same time, progress must be gradual. Just as, O bhikkhus, the mighty ocean deepens and slopes gradually down, not plunging by a sudden precipice, so in this norm discipline the training is gradual and there is no sudden penetration to insight. If progress seems to be slow, remember that lives of wrong habits of thought must be surmounted. To attempt to learn too fast will only lead to mental indigestion. As the Master M once wrote to A.P. Sinnott, Knowledge for the mind, like food for the body, is intended to feed and help to growth, but it requires to be well digested, and the more thoroughly and slowly the process is carried out, the better both for body and mind. 
Patience is indeed a virtue and a necessary quality in the would-be meditator. It is said that a Chinese craftsman thinks his life well spent if during it he creates one perfect masterpiece, and he who views the illusion of time through philosophic eyes will think a single life well spent if one small stage of the path be trodden thoroughly. Even if no single stage be perfectly accomplished, yet the student may take heart. As the voice of the silence says, learn that no efforts, not the smallest, whether in right or wrong direction, can vanish from the world of causes. Even wasted smoke remains not traceless. So that, if the effort be continuous and sincere, results are certain, however long delayed. Beware of self-congratulation. It is said that many a weakling can put up with failure, but only a strong man can withstand success. When the first well-earned results of mental training begin to manifest, Beware of the separative effect of self-conceit. Self-gratulation, O Lanu, is like unto a lofty tower up which a haughty fool has climbed. Thereon he sits in prideful solitude, and unperceived by any but himself. All too soon a little success in the inner life will breed a sense of superiority over one's fellows, a sense of separation from those apparently less advanced upon the way. Yet remember, as the writer of Light on the Path advises, that great though the gulf may be between the good man and the sinner, it is greater between the good man and the man who has attained knowledge. It is immeasurable between the good man and the one on the threshold of divinity. Therefore be wary lest too soon you fancy yourself a thing apart from the mass. When you have found the beginning of the way, the star of your soul will show its light. And by that light you will perceive how great is the darkness in which it burns. Beware of guru hunting. The Western world is filled with those who seek for masters, gurus, and other mysterious personages to lead them swiftly to the goal. But there is no shortcut to perfection, and the true adepts will never help a student unless, first, he has made all possible use of the materials at hand, and, secondly, he has by the purity of his life and aspiration shown himself worthy of their help. When that hour strikes and not before, the teacher will appear. Beware then of this craving for assistance, for it is born of laziness and conceit and is in turn the father of disappointment and delay. Ignore psychic experiences or the appearance of psychic powers. 
Meditation will sooner or later raise the consciousness to a level at which occasional and hazy glimpses will be obtained of the realm above the physical. This is the psychic world filled only with the shadows and reflections of reality. A world of illusion through which the seeker after truth must delicately pick his way. To one whose vision has hitherto been confined to the physical plane, anything superphysical is all too easily labeled spiritual. And the visions, voices, and messages which fill the seance room can without difficulty impose themselves on a credulous audience as worthy of acceptance. Let not the student be fooled by their enchantment, nor by those who in all sincerity believe themselves the bearers of such messages. There are in the West today a score of adepts and messiahs, many of whom genuinely believe the nonsense claimed on their behalf. Yet a little common sense would prick the bubble world of illusion in which they live. With a little less vanity, they would wonder what qualities they had which caused them to be chosen as the messenger, and they would be genuinely hurt on learning that it is a combination of vanity and a mediumistic makeup which lays them open to such psychic influence. The psychic world is filled with an immense variety of thought forms built up by the human imagination. Yet, radiant though they seem to untutored eyes in the starry light that surrounds all psychic visions, they are but the glamorous products of illusion. The same considerations apply to the advent of psychic powers. Because the student occasionally becomes aware that he possesses senses which are superphysical, it only means that he has peeped through into the next plane of being. Pass on, for here is the realm of illusion, and reality lies far beyond. To waste one's precious time in cultivating psychic powers is to sidestep from the path of self-enlightenment. These powers will be useful at a later stage, but for the time being are best ignored. Learn to want to meditate. In other words, learn to direct desire. Unwilling work is badly done, and there is less waste of effort and a higher standard of workmanship in exercises carried out with the whole soul's will than in those which are the outcome of a habit forced on an unwilling mind. Until, therefore, the practice of meditation has become a joyous necessity, as mentioned in the next paragraph, do not be ashamed to give up a little time to achieving this attitude towards it. The ideal condition is what an engineer would describe as a clean drive through from the power source to the point of application, in this case from the highest within one to the act itself. Internal friction only dissipates energy and reduces the output of useful work. 
The same applies to persuading others against their will to take up meditation before the desire to do so has been aroused. It is worthwhile studying the relation between will and desire. It is an ancient axiom that behind will stands desire. For will is a colorless, impersonal force and acts for good or evil as directed by desire. If the desires be rightly directed, the will becomes a powerful force for good in proportion as it is developed. That is, in proportion to the individual's ability to call upon the limitless reservoir of force which is the universe. To one whose desires are purely altruistic, this ability to attach one's belt to the powerhouse of the universe, as R.W. Trine calls it, will be indeed immeasurable. For just as the perfectly aligned machine will lead the thrust of the engine direct to its work, so the perfect alignment of will and desire will direct the universal will to the chosen end. Modern psychology is slowly awakening to these ancient truths. A conflict between the desires of one's various vehicles will lead to a complex more or less charged with emotion according to the strength of the desires. But if thine eye be single, the whole body will be full of light and friction at an end. It is common knowledge that where there's a will, there's a way. And if a man be pursuing his heart's desire, he can accomplish seeming miracles. It is therefore wise to spend a little time considering the manifold desirability of mind development, so that once begun, the whole complex being of the student will move with singleness of aim towards the chosen goal. There is no particular technique for bringing the desires into the required focus. No man digs for copper when he is finding gold. An honest comparison between the value of worldly pursuits and spiritual exercises will serve to concentrate the whole soul's will in the direction indicated by the highest part of one. Desire is the motive force of all action and is good or evil according as it strives for sensuous or spiritual ends. By thoughtfully comparing the permanent results achieved by meditation with the ephemeral pleasures gained by gratification of lower desires, the latter may be slowly sublimated into higher channels, until the strength once dissipated on lower pursuits is redirected to spiritual ends. There is another reason for this preliminary focus of desire. For it will be found in meditation that right desire excludes all alien thought. A man listening to his favorite symphony is oblivious to all distracting thoughts or happenings. In the same way, a man whose sole desire is to gain what only meditation can produce will find the lesser attraction of intruding thought of no avail to draw him from his desire. Do not neglect existing duties. It has been said that meditation is first an effort, then a habit, and finally a joyous necessity. When the third stage comes, 
Beware lest the discovery that it ranks in interest and value far ahead of earthly pursuits and happenings should lure one from the due performance of the daily round. Remember what H.P. Blavatsky says in Practical Occultism. The immediate work, whatever it may be, has the abstract claim of duty, and its relative importance or non-importance is not to be considered at all. What else is the world around us but the soul's gymnasium? As Master K.H. wrote to A.P. Sinnott, Does it seem a small thing to you that the past year has been spent only in your family duties? Nay, but what better cause for reward, what better discipline, than the daily and hourly performance of duty? Part 1, Section 2, Concentration Concentration is the narrowing of the field of attention in a matter and for a time determined by the will. These words of Ernest Wood in his book, Raja Yoga, explain the famous story told of Arjuna in Paramanda's concentration in meditation. Once in ancient India, there was a tournament held to test marksmanship in archery. A wooden fish was set up on a high pole, and the eye of the fish was the target. One by one, many valiant princes came and tried their skill, but in vain. Before each one shot his arrow, the teacher asked him what he saw, and invariably all replied that they saw a fish on a pole at a great height with head, eyes, and the rest. But Arjuna, as he took his aim, said, I see the eye of the fish and he was the only one who succeeded in hitting the mark. The most helpful analogy is probably that of a searchlight. The factors which determine a searchlight's value are its power, its capacity for clear and unwavering focus, the size of the field thus clearly lighted, and the ease with which it can be focused where desired. The human equivalent of these factors will in like manner determine the value of the thought machine as an instrument for meditation. All these factors are developed by the practice of concentration, the effect of sustained effort being an ever-increasing field of clear focus into which no extraneous subject may intrude. Needless to say, Proficiency in concentration is by no means easy to attain. As is written in the Dhammapada, hard to control, unstable is the mind, ever in quest of delight. But, good it is to subdue the mind, a mind controlled brings happiness. Like many other arts and sciences, it is largely a matter of knack and after long periods of seemingly fruitless efforts, a semblance of proficiency will suddenly appear. The immediate results of such success will be a reduction in the usual wastage of thought energy, and consequently a greater reserve in hand. Then comes a sense of self-discovery, a dawning appreciation of the difference between the knower and the instrument of knowledge, the man and his various vehicles, 
From this, in turn, comes a deeper understanding of the meaning of self-mastery. The student finds new meaning in the famous passage in the Dhammapada. Irrigators lead the water where they will. Fletchers shape the arrow. Carpenters bend the wood to their will. Wise men shape themselves. Again, as thought is the father of action, control of thought leads to greater control on the physical plane. There is less waste of energy in useless movements of the hands and body, and therefore less fatigue. The natural reservoir of physical energy is thus allowed to accumulate until applied as definitely wanted and the general health is correspondingly improved. The next achievement is a greater coordination between the various planes of consciousness. Mind, emotion, and action begin to function as one unit, and the waste of energy produced by worry is replaced by a calm, deliberate effort to remove its cause. So much for the credit side of the newly drawn-up balance sheet. As against this, there is sometimes noted a curious sense of loss, a mental aridity, and, as it were, an emotional vacuum. If this occurs, remember that it is a period of transition in which the mind has been for the first time withdrawn from its habitual playground in the world of sense and has not yet acclimatized itself to supersensuous levels. More rare at this stage, but for the time being more unpleasant, is the experience of finding that life's difficulties, so far from growing less, seem to increase from the moment the new practice is begun. All who strive to hasten the slow march of evolution seem to call upon themselves an increasing volume of their own past karma. If this be unpleasant to the personality, it is to be welcomed by the essential man, for not until all karma is expended will he be able to press on to the ideal, the enlightenment of all humanity. On the other hand, there will be this compensating discovery that in proportion as the student gains control of his vehicles, so will his mental reaction to environment improve. Mere proficiency in concentration will of itself induce an improvement in character, and the student will begin to see that facts are of no importance. What matters is their significance. Facts are facts, but it is for the individual to decide his reaction to them. As Epictetus pointed out, if any man be unhappy, let him know that it is by reason of himself alone. The wise man will refuse to allow the changing face of circumstance to disturb his inner serenity. Before proceeding to the practice of concentration, let it be noted that there is a definite distinction between the development of the mind, which we are now considering, and the development of the emotions, to which we have devoted a chapter at a later stage. An appreciation of this distinction will provide an answer to the charge that concentration is cold and dull and remind the student that emotions are not suitable subjects for concentration of the mind. As subjects for lower meditation, they are, of course, of value, but they are not fit subjects for the acquisition of one-pointedness of thought. Concentration General The subject of concentration falls into two divisions, 
general and particular. The former consisting of the cultivation of an habitual mode of thought, and the latter comprising the special exercises by which this quality of mind is developed. Too much stress is laid in textbooks on the latter, and far too little on the need for cultivating the right attitude of mind each hour of the day. As Annie Besant wrote in her introduction to yoga, many sit down for meditation and wonder why they do not succeed. How can you suppose that half an hour of meditation and 23 and a half hours of scattering of thought throughout the day and night will enable you to concentrate during the half hour? You have undone during the day and night what you did in the morning, as Penelope unraveled the web she wove. Unless the whole day be spent in applying the lesson learnt in the morning's exercise, no progress will be made. Indeed, there comes a time when the special exercises are given up. A student writes from a Zen monastery in Japan, As one progresses further, meditation on one's koan continues through all one's waking hours and even, I think, during one's sleep. The most advanced monks are given practically no time for formal sitting, and yet they must go to the abbot for koan interview as many times as the young monks who spend the larger part of their waking hours in formal meditation. When meditation becomes a habit of mind, the formal side is discarded as much as possible. The following suggestions may help in the cultivation of this attitude of mind. Get physically fit and remain so. Remember that even in the highest meditation, consciousness must function through the physical brain, and unless the body is fit, the brain will never function to the best of its ability. Physical fitness is not easy to acquire or maintain under modern conditions of living, but a little thought in acquiring the maximum of sunshine and fresh air, sufficient sleep, and the maximum purity of food will be well repaid. More than one aspirant to yoga has pointed out that no good results can be obtained in a dirty body. That is to say, one which, however clean without, is badly regulated within. Hence the saying, the key to yoga lies in the lower bowel. And certainly a lavish use of pure water, inside as well as out, goes far towards acquiring and maintaining a healthy physical instrument. Having got the body fit, learn to dominate it. Treat it as the animal it is, considerately yet firmly, and train it in obedience with exercises and physical control. Learn to distinguish its desires from your own. You do not crave for tobacco, sweetmeats, comfort, warmth, or perfume. Let your body learn this fact by giving up, at least for a specified time, one fond offense. Be it cigarettes or coffee, silk underclothes, or that extra 10 minutes in bed. In the same way, cultivate a philosophical indifference to the bumps and bruises of daily life. And refuse to listen to the body's perpetual plea for indulgence in its physical desires. Number two, concentrate on the task in hand. The trivial round, the common task will furnish all we need to ask, of opportunity to develop a constant one-pointedness of mind. As a student wrote from the wisdom of experience, before one can meditate, one must learn to concentrate. 
Otherwise, one will be possessed with the will and the inspiration, but lack the necessary third ingredient, technique. Begin by letting the whole of your day become an exercise in concentration, making each action to be done the one thing then worth doing. First, say to yourself, I am now going to concentrate for, say, an hour doing this, and let all other matters stand aside. This I shall do without thought of self, but because it is the right thing to be done. Then forget all about the need to concentrate and get on with the job, whether it be the passing of an examination, the drafting of a document, or the cleaning of a room. In order to accumulate the energy for this sustained effort, strive to eliminate all idle and purposeless activity, whether mental, emotional, or physical. In the ideal, every thought and act should have a purpose behind it and be deliberately dedicated to a useful end. Mention has already been made of the need to curb unnecessary physical movements and mannerisms. The same applies to thought and feeling. Long periods of time are wasted in idle daydreaming or the useless harping upon some trivial fact or circumstance. And the same applies to indulgence in emotion without its corresponding thought and action. To pander to one's emotional craving for stimulus may afford one a pleasant kick, but only adds to the difficulties of ultimate self-mastery. By ceasing to dissipate one's energies so lavishly on things of no importance, there will be left in hand a larger capacity for organizing the daily round in such a way that the maximum of useful work is accomplished in the minimum of time. It is proverbial that the busiest man finds it easiest to fit in something more, and an effectively ordered timetable, combined with a wise use of available energy, will enable the would-be meditator to find both the time and energy for this greatest of all exercises. But life forever swings like a pendulum between the pairs of opposites. As the sequence of day and night, so is the alteration of work and rest. And it is in these minutes of comparative repose that the difference appears between the trained and the untrained student of mind development. The beginner allows his energy to drain away in idle conversation or mental rambling. In vague revision of past experiences, or anxiety, or events as yet unborn, or in a thousand other wasteful ways for which, were he spending gold instead of mental energy, he would be hailed as a reckless spendthrift to be avoided by all prudent men. The wise man, however, learns the value of the smallest opportunity, and uses these otherwise idle moments to some useful end. Students of concentration practice a useful exercise, while those who have reached the stage of meditation keep a phrase in the mind to be mentally chewed over, or carry in the pocket one of the many booklets of spiritual wisdom from which to gather nourishment for the self within. When it is appreciated, for example, that not only have thousands read and even learnt by heart Sir Edwin Arnold's The Light of Asia by this means, but that Sir Edwin actually wrote the greater part of it on scraps of paper in such odd moments of the day, 
some idea will be gained out of the value to which these unforgiving minutes may be put. But, it may be argued, if every spare moment is used in such activity, what of the need for occasional repose? Only experience will prove the paradox that such a habit, so far from leading to further exhaustion, actually reinvigorates the mind. Once, again, such a habit is formed, it will be found that the mind, when otherwise unoccupied, will tend to revert automatically to the central theme or phrase, and by thus filling the day with a succession of spiritual moments, the student will find his thought machinery being trained to an attitude of habitual concentration on a worldly problem if so ordered, if not, on a theme of more permanent value to the inner man. Even when the time comes for a well-earned rest, it will be found advisable either to bring the mind to rest on a subject of value and interest, or else learn how to suspend all mental activity. Far too little thought is given to the art of relaxation, yet never has it been more necessary than in these days of ceaseless dissipation of energy. Remember that recreation ought to be, as the word implies, a recreation, and not a further expenditure of energy in useless pursuits. The study of newspapers, for instance, being the apotheosis of distraction, destroys the effect of exercises in concentration. Of far more recreative value is good literature, good music, the reading or writing of poetry, and when feasible, the games of patience, jigsaw puzzles, and the like, which pleased an older generation, but which no longer satisfy the craze for speed and nervous excitement which characterizes the present day. Beware, however, of emulating the amusing example of concentration which once appeared in Punch, where a woman is shown sitting in an armchair and at the same time knitting, reading a book, listening to the wireless, rocking a cradle with her foot, and talking to her husband. The alternative to such forms of relaxation, as above described, is to practice the art of complete relaxation of body and mind, ten minutes of which will be found to be more refreshing than hours of restless sleep. If circumstances permit, lie full length on the floor, if not on a couch or even in a chair. Loosen any tight clothing, then relax each portion of the body deliberately and consciously. Then close the eyes and visualize utter darkness. Feel yourself floating in a silent void and deliberately empty the mind of every thought or feeling by imagining such a condition as Swinburne's only asleep eternal in an eternal night. Even five minutes of this exercise, once the knack is acquired, will produce an abundance of fresh energy and a clean-swept and invigorated mind. Number three, clarify every issue and be a master of each act. It is an astonishing fact that very few people think, though many think